Hello? Dave, is it you? Oh, hi, Peter. I've done most of the digging. Did you bring the stuff? Uh, yep. Uh, garlic, uh, crosses, holy water, tape recorder, coffee, scroggin. Uh, yeah, yeah, everything we need for a Halloween adventure. Uh, nice mask, by the way. Very scary. Uh, sorry? Do you remember back when we thought we'd have all these specials done by last Halloween? Yeah, what a decade this year has been. You ready? Yes, uh, yeah. Um, uh, are you sure this is the back door into Gasty's old editorial office? Yeah, yeah, if I've interpreted the secret code in the ghastly tales right. Should we just try it out? Look, I've told you kids we've run out of... Oh, 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 it's you two. What do you want? Oh, hello. Um, we've come to do the podcast. We haven't heard from you in a while, so we thought we'd drop in. No, you're not. Don't you know there's a lockdown on? Mr. Garcia's over 350 years old. That's a vulnerable age group. We've been social distancing at least six feet under. Y yeah, but aren't you, like, already dead? That doesn't mean we're stupid. <sighs> okay, you better come in. And wash your hands. We don't know where you've been. That's nice, by the way. Oh, don't you start. After ten issues of full nerve-numbing stories, you still dare to look within the pages of Scream. Wasn't the frightful cover scene from Tales of the Grave too much for you? Perhaps some of you are made of sterner stuff than I thought. In which case, from this issue onward, the fear factor of each story will be increased. Only the really brave among you will stand it. Ghastly McNasty. Hello, dear listener. Welcome back. Oh, it's a year on, but now we're doing screen issues 9 to 12. Crikey. Yeah, from the 19th of May 1984 to the 9th of June 1984. I'm Peter. I'm Dave. It's been a while. We hope you're all safe and well and uh, surviving the true terror and horror that is the dark future. <laughs> Indeed. Hey, Dave, I've got a theme for this episode. What's your theme for this episode, Peter? Everywhere I look in these stories, there's a bone or two. A whole rack of them. And I think that Scream has discovered skeletal mania. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I can't think of anything to say to that. <laughs> no. What's the first story? Speaking of all things ghastly and scary, Peter... Indeed. Shall we get straight into it with The Dracula Files? Story by Simon Furman, art by Eric Bradbury, letters by John Aldrich. But before we start, just a quick mm. note. I've actually done a reread of It's Ghastly, the lovely Hypernia book. If you ever get a chance, get, get a hold of it. We got a digital copy some time ago when we started all this. Simon Furman, now we give him a short, sharp strift with the terror of the cats and what the work he did on that I hadn't appreciated he's actually only just started as a sub-editor this is his first gig and mm. 
especially with Terror of the Cats, he had to rewrite it because for some reason, lost to time, the original ending wasn't allowed. So, you know, interesting. Interesting, interesting. Also, during this run of stories, Ken Noble will be doing some of the strips and we're probably going to see it starting to become a bit more of a Dracula thing of the week mm -hmm. plot structure, but we're only just going to touch into that before things get very dark. Excellent. Anyway, previously on the Dracula file. To the tyrannical Transylvanian terror, Dracula <laughs> has escaped a Cold War Europe to the city of London with Soviet spy stalker Stakus in hot pursuit. This time, Dracula and his mindless minions, Captain Black and Nurse Nightingale, are holed up in the filthiest, scungiest, seediest hotel that Bradbury can draw. And the Count, <laughs> he's not happy. Ooh. He's had to spend a day sleeping in a bathtub lined with his native soil. His fury knows no bounds. One star, one star would not recommend. Oh my god, snap. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, 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 no. Well done. <laughs> and after threatening his minions to put it right, the Dark Lord departs, turning into a bat and flying off to search for prey. Soon he discovers a mugging where four biker hoons have cornered a bookish, bespectacled student, and the villain's mistake hit this Batman as some kind of caped crusader. Uh-oh. Bad move. Drac makes short work of the swastika-wearing leader, Ray Logan. Sorry, Fox. Before being <laughs> shivved in the chest by an extra from the Warriors movie. The vampire rips his throat out with his clawed bare hands, and the other yobs decide they really want to join the Roman army and become in charge of a legion, Peter. <laughs> they leg it. <laughs> oh, gee whiz! Thank you for saving me, mister! Oh no, don't you understand? I was saving you for myself. Yeah. And after feeding on the hapless human, Dracula picks up the still groggy Ray and turns him into another thrall. Because he's not too impressed with Black and Nightingale, is he? He's a, not a happy bunny. He can't get the staff. <laughs> Meanwhile, in a slightly better boarding house, the recently arrived Colonel Starkus sharpens his stakes and prepares for dawn. Now the hunt can begin. Next issue, Dracula takes the cover of Scream as well as the headlines in several local papers. Starkus is convinced he is on the right trail while Dracula sleeps soundly through the day in a stolen coffin watched over by his slaves, Black and Nightingale in his room while Ray watches from the rear of the hotel. Starkus, meanwhile, has been pounding the pavements, drawn to the location of, by reports of a stolen coffin, and purely by chance, sees the marks on Black's neck as he checks out the castle hotel. He sneaks round the back, planning to wait until sundown, but runs into Ray, who tries to mow him down on his mobike, Peter. <laughs> Oh, that's a long callback to the Invisible Boy. <laughs> He's probably appearing invisibly. 
Stakus <laughs> reacts quickly and flings a bottle of holy water into the biker's face. Temporarily blinded, Ray swerves and crashes, and Stakus manages a quick escape to restock his arsenal. As night falls and the vampire awakes, a recovered Ray informs his master of the incursion, and realizing Black must have revealed their hideout, Dracula, raging, turns on his minion. Soon after, Starkus breaks into Dracula's hotel room only to find Black's broken body under a bedsheet. But while Nightingale and Ray manhandle Dracula's coffin over the rooftops, Black awakens, now a fully-fledged vampire, and lunges at Starkus. I smell a spin-off. <laughs> the two <laughs> grapple and Black gains the upper hand, smashing Starkus's holy water bottle and scattering his steak and cloves of garlic. Frantic, Starkus comes up with a desperate plan and manages to impale Black with a coat hook. Uh, in pausable photos on the Facebook page, people. No wire hangers. No wire hangers. <laughs> Starkus then escapes out through the window as terrified guests rush to investigate. Meanwhile, Dracula's minions have set up a new base in a squalid, derelict industrial building a few miles away. Dracula decides to feast on hobo hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> but the vagrant vittles are saved as their blood is tainted by alcohol and the demon settles in for scaring them out of the condemned building before feasting on a nearby temperance billboard man. I'm getting mixed moral signals, Peter. Well, we know that Dracula does not drink wine. Near. <laughs> Doesn't drink vinos. Vinos. <laughs> As the days pass, Dracula roams the night, feasting on London night buses. Watch out, Harry Potter! <laughs> as Starkus stalks the midnight streets. Then Dracula and his minions waylay a local carpenter, mistaking his woodworking tools for Stakus's bag of tricks. Oh. Dracula engulfs the man from deep within a London letterbox. Cripes to him! <laughs> before settling down for a day in his coffin, reflecting on his previous battles with vampire hunters. One in particular. Next time, once upon a time in Transylvania. Excellent. Wow, there's a lot going on. <laughs> it's interesting that the flashback, not having read that far, is probably not going to be the traditional Elizabeth that we get in modern sort of visitations of the vampire story. Because everything around Dracula in this is very much the... He's the beast in the shadows. He's not the tortured, doomed lover cast across the oceans of time or anything like that. No, no. We're very much the traditional amicus hammer horror mm. vampire mm. hunters. But, you know, having said that, though, this is all very much Dracula 1972. You know, mm -hmm. Bradbury's art is nice and gritty and squalid and horrible. And again, it's interesting because... We've both been to London in the cool Britannia era, whereas this mm. is really harkening back to, you know, derelict areas in the Docklands and seedy, seedy stuff, which I'm sure is still mm -hmm. there, but, you know, London's a dive, yeah. as Bradbury draws it. Yeah. I don't know what the writing changes would have meant long term in this, but you can see the start of the formula of the, the cat and mouse game starting to start. Which is important because at this stage we've been sort of denied a, a white hat character. Um, Starkus is an unlikely one and as little as we're given to his personality I guess we root for him but at the same time I still wonder you know, who's the hero? The title character is Dracula 
and Dracula's appealing to a 10 to 12 year old boy because he's a power fantasy I've even got a note here equating him to Doomlord yeah and I wonder if the script would progress you'd be like Doomlord 1, 2 and 3 where you'd have Dracula defeated and dying and coming back Mm. by some nefarious shenanigans it's early days yet you wouldn't know but the first Doomlord story didn't last that long I think no. comparatively, we've got Howard Harvey at the UN at this stage. Wow. So it's interesting because compare Stakus to Howard Harvey, they're very much white hat characters and you don't really know what's going on behind the hunt. Stakus hasn't stopped to talk to a nice young lady on the tube and expose what it's like in Russia, nor has Howard Harvey actually filed any reports about, you know, the fight at the WI. You don't know anything about them. They're defined by their opposition to the mm. the, mm. the villainous anti-hero. Yeah, yeah, take it on faith. Yeah. And mm. to be honest, the tragedy is, of Stagus is this is basically it. Mm. <laughs> no secret coming, guys, but we're not far away from the end of the run and it, it, it is unresolved for 25-odd years. Yeah. But more later. Stagus is high. <laughs> but speaking of being defined by the villainous monster, Peter. Monster by Rick Clark, John Wagner. Art by Jesus Redondo. Lettering by Pete Bensberg. Fugitives young Kenny Corman and his monstrous Uncle Terry are hiding in a railway linesman cottage near Little Rouncing while a full scale police manhunt is on to find them. While Terry sleeps, Kenny finds a newspaper referring to a doctor in Scotland. Uh, specialising in the treatment of violent offenders. Oh, something that might help poor Terry, who is already killed in rage twice. They hear police dogs approach, and escaping the cottage, disappear behind an express train before their pursuers can catch up, and they steal aboard a lorry as it leaves the level crossing. Terry's never seen dogs before, uh, and he's never seen cars or a motorway before, and who knows where they're headed, but after an hour they stop, and Kenny buys food at a local truck stop while Terry waits in worry. But oh no, Kenny spots the driver leave the stop too late, and the lorry leaves the Terry aboard. Kenny races to stop the lorry, but it's well clear. Then, an explosion of glass as a man is thrown through a plate glass window by Terry, confused and already looking for Kenny, so he wasn't on the truck. A greengrocer sets on him with a broom and is swept aside. Terry flings a fruit machine into the restaurant, and finally... Kenny catches up with him. Jackpot. Once again, they slip on board a lorry, bound this time for Aberdeen, and once more they flee a scene of utter destruction. Back at Little Rancing, the police work with tramps set on by Terry in the last episode, oh, so long ago, Dave. An identicate of Terry is made as reports come in of another sighting at the lay-by in Barngate on the M1. M is for mayhem. It all matches, and it seems the boy is in charge. Hallie, who is the inspector, fumes. How many more will be injured or dead before we can close this case and cage this beast? The evening news reports it all accurately, mostly, and Inspector Hallie receives reports from all over the country of sightings of the monster, many of them bogus. Meanwhile, in another country, a lorry rolls into an Aberdeen goods yard. Oh, hang on, and... now, now, hang on. The oh. vote didn't go that way, Peter. It's still Britain. Meanwhile, in another part of Britain, a lorry rolls into an Aberdeen goods yard and its driver and its mate at the yard discuss the day's news. Kenny and Terry quietly slip off the lorry's back and toward the yard gates, but find them locked. 
and they're discovered. The two men leave Kenny, but set on Terry with planks. We'll show you how we'll deal with monsters north of the border. Sorry, Philip. Um, <laughs> Actually, I was going to say, apart from the occasional beastie in Sassanac, those aren't the ethnic stereotypes that are so wrong in this story. Oh, no, the greengrocer was... Uh, yeah, I, I skipped past that day, but yeah, yeah the greengrocer is, is portrayed to be of the Asian persuasion. Yes. Anyway, swiftly moving on. Alas, Terry quickly gets the upper hand and fails his assailants. Kenny realises they have to reach Carmody, that's the doctor's home, on foot. That's about a hundred miles away. And they leave, and behind, the bodies of the two men are soon discovered. Kenny and Terry trudge on for miles on foot through the Inverness countryside and sleep in an old shepherd's lodge. There's no shepherd there, but Kenny is woken by a poacher armed with a shotgun and after the reward for the monster. Prodding Terry awake, the poacher gets more than he's bargained for, and there's another scuffle, and Kenny is shot in the arm by a stray bullet. Terry leaps on the poacher, and the man's end comes at his own weapon. Another murder. I think we should rename the strip, Oh No, Uncle Terry, Not Again. (laughs) (laughs) All together now! Oh no, Uncle Terry. They flee on the poacher's motorbike, but after some time Kenny's wound is raging and they have to stop at the gates of a very large property. Hopefully it's the doctor. Kenny collapses, and Terry carries him through, not able to read the sign, which says, Beware of the dogs. Two Dobermans leap up on the attack. And that is Monster for this month. Next time, dogfight. Although, I must admit, we now know who let the dogs out. Yes. Yes. Not a lot to say about it, because it's all pumping along. One thing I think we need to probably pin for the end of the episode is, man, Scream is dense. Craggy. Yes, it is. Most stories are about four pages long. Mm. Everything is packed in. We're going to see this as we as we continue through these, these issues, folks. I must admit, though, there is one bit of dialogue I did love in this story the walking about as any good Scotsman would, walking several hundred miles. Um, <laughs> and Terry goes, have we done it? Are we there yet? And it's like, yeah. no, we haven't We haven't got a hundred feet. Terry only got... Got... Two. Ha- ha- how many feet Terry got? Yeah. <laughs> it was probably painting it a little on a little thick, but, you know, oh, Uncle Terry, not again. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of visiting strange doctors, Peter. Oh, yes. Next up is Tales from the Grave. Story by R. Hunter, art by Jim Watson, letters by Peter Knight. Or the leper's not up, the leper's not up to telling stories this week on account of feeling poorly like. It's his teeth, see? Agony in the nasheries. But he's wary of dentists. One, Thomas Thorpe in particular. Yes, our leprous friend the gravedigger spins a tale of Sweeney Todd the Dentist (laughs) as terrible tooth treater Thorpe carries out many an extraction from his surgery overlooking the River Thames. And when a rich client comes along, Thorpe has a sideline with local near-do-well Grimes who will case the clients home for a bit of thievery if they look like a likely mark. Well, if they can afford to go to the dentist, I mean, that's a pretty good sign in itself. Hey, Peter, we don't know how lucky we are where we are in the world. Well, I'm just thinking about a dental surgery that actually overlooks the Thames. What's the going rate there? Yeah, fair enough. Well, you know, like I said, 
in many ways, Scream is another world. Yeah. Although I remember going to a very weird dental practice in Auckland that overlooked Parnell that was you know, a scary tale for another day. <laughs> anyway, one day Thorpe is visited by an old man named George Makepeace, who Grimes note is the perfect target. So Thorpe arranges to remove Mr. Makepeace's troublesome tooth add a nice gold filling with it before pulling a lever that sends the old man plummeting three floors into the building's basement where Grimes finishes him off with a heavy club. Grimes then dumps the body in the Thames and the two crooks go to loot the old man's house. But the plan starts to go awry later that night as a ghostly figure emerges from the foul river water. I shall have my revenge. So far, so familiar. Then, next issue, in the wee small hours, Thorpe and Grimes break into the old man's now-empty home and start ransacking the place, while the dentist examines the occult section of the Makepeace's private library. (laughs) Grimes is drawn away by some unexpected noises upstairs. With murder on his mind, Grimes finds an empty chair, apparently moving by itself, and then is confronted by a ghostly Makepeace who uses his spectral powers to fling the chair and Grimes out of the third floor window and the thief is impaled on the wrought iron railings surrounding the property. He's going to leave a mark. Thorpe hoofs it. Looking back, he sees a spectral makepiece watching him from the third floor balcony and realises he's crossed the wrong warlock. He dashes back to his own surgery, only to find makepiece waiting for him. The black magician compliments Thorpe on his trapdoor system to the basement and opens it up to reveal a zombie Grimes crawling up from the depths. <laughs> the fetid monster claws his erstwhile accomplice into the dentist's chair on the cover too. It's a nice scene. Mm. And Makepeace pulls the lever again to send them tumbling, not into the Thames, but somewhere much hotter. <laughs> Hell itself. <laughs> So the bodies were never recovered, and so the leper can't show you the graves. But it's not like he'd want a dentist filling any holes in around here. <laughs> Next time, the escape. Now, bit of bookkeeping. We're one issue short this episode. I'm going to bring it into the next issue because we've got Fair a enough. bit of housekeeping to do there. As always, it's pretty good. Hammer Horror, Amicus Victoriana, Penny Dreadful stuff. Mm. Got a Sweeney Todd vibe, very nice art, the muted colours suited really well. I was going to say, the first episode does recall the, the early Leopard's Tale with, with The Undertaker, which is a similar modus operandi. And then, of course, there's the twist, <laughs> which yes. is a rather nice one. <laughs> Speaking of unpleasant ends for unpleasant people, it's the 13th floor. In Holland, it's Wagner and Grant, art by Jose Ortiz, letters by Peters. On a busy urban motorway, a man, a callous dog bowler called Nelson, is trapped by oncoming vehicles driven by grinning skeletons. Skeletal mania, Dave! (laughs) Above, in the night sky, crackles his tormentor, Max the computer warden, and Nelson is trapped on Max's domain the 13th floor of Maxwell Towers. Nelson is meeting his Waterloo. Oh yes, dodging the traffic in terror, Nelson makes it to a traffic island, but is mown down by an illusory lorry and slumps lifeless to the floor of Max's lift. 
crawl, crawl or die. <laughs> Max now has a dilemma. What to do with an unconscious man? He finds another unconscious man, I mean. Bert Runch, bricklayer, asleep in his bed in Maxwell Towers and open to hypnotic suggestion. Max possesses him and has Bert drop Nelson off to a lonely stretch of nearby motorway. Job done, Max wipes Bert's memory. The perfect crime. The next day, dodgy plumbing causes the ceiling to collapse on poor Mr. Crusoe in 17D. Max calls for the plumber, Campbell, to do the repairs, but Campbell denies responsibility and behaves appallingly, dismissing Mr. Crusoe's possible imminent demise. Max calls them down to another job. On the 13th floor, there the taps are terribly leaky, flooding the floor around Campbell and his lackey, Trevor. The lights go out, and when Campbell strikes a match, he sets fire to some inopportune curtains, and the waters are replaced by flames. Strike a light! <laughs> it's curtains for him. Though the door's locked, Campbell smashes his way through, but there's no lift beyond, just crumbling stairs which flatten out, setting Campbell and Trev onto a spontaneously combusting landing. Campbell grabs a nearby fire hose, but of course, no water comes. And as the flames close in, he drops to his knees and begs Max mercy. Just then, there's a phone call, and Max hears Mr. Crusoe's daughter report that her father is very much on the mend. As easily as it's created, the flaming floor disappears. Mercy it is, Mr. Campbell. The bewildered plumber and his mate are left dazed and confused, remembering an awful experience on a floor that Max says the building simply does not have. They wander off. Outside, Max looks on, satisfied. After all, who'd believe them? <laughs> <laughs> with, with all these leaks and fires and bloody contractors, I'm getting real House of the Demon vibes. <laughs> yes, it's quite reminiscent of it with the you know the stairs suddenly turning treacherous yes. and, and everything. Yes. Yeah, the, and the building course. itself. Yes. Yeah. What's well, he's knocking it out of the park as usual. As always. Not long after, a new family. The Sopers, uh, no, <laughs> no relation, arrive at Maxwell Towers unannounced, bound for a flat that is still occupied, but at the behest of a Mr. Bullock, mustachioed man of the housing office. I, I, I remember four candles. Oh, four candles. Mr. Bullock's. <laughs> Max contacts Bullock, but when he does, he finds the man not my kind of person at all. The incoming family, the Sopers, have nowhere to go, so must be split up until they can find alternative accommodation themselves. Max intervenes, but Bullock is unmoved, and storms are over later when Max calls him to report the Sopers have returned. He takes the lift to where Max says the Sopers are. The 13th floor. <laughs> but the lift opens to a clifftop over a raging sea. Bullock in his surprise trips and falls out and onto a raft on the turbulent waves. He bobbles about, but then the raft breaks apart. Just like the Sova family, towards Max. The timbers of the raft finally slip free and Bullocks clings to the last log, nearly drowning but for Max's mercy. As he splutters for air, the seas calm and a small island begins to appear and grows closer as Bullock drifts towards it. And safety. As four dorsal fins break the surface behind him. <laughs> Next week... <laughs> Desert Island, Max. Peter, got a question for you. Is Mr. Bullock a cameo by Christopher Benjamin or CJ? I can't tell which one couldn't get where they are today. 
it is an impressive moustache that he has. It's not the first impre- impressive moustache we're going to see. Ingram's, the police inspector, has a rather marvellous one as well. But yeah, I, I took a sort of a got a sort of a Captain Peacock vibe off ah, as well. Yes, yes. I could just hear all his lines in the Henry Warden Jago voice. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice it to say, Mr. Bullock's troubles are only just beginning. Yes. As always, I like the poeticness of some of Max's justice. Yep, that's what you're going to get. Um, you know, delicious justice, courtesy of Max. For a kid's comic, he does a nice line in irony. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to like Max. I mean, I defy anybody not to like Max. Frankly, he wears the slightly off-white hat. <laughs> if you don't like Max, we have some stairs you might like to try. <laughs> Going up. But speaking of courting danger, Peter, mm. shall we go to covers and spectacular features? <laughs> yes, the irregular regulars. We've got a couple of lovely wraparound covers this month. Mm. In issue nine, we've got the Faces of Fear. I don't know who did it, but it's a wraparound with a. Mm. Um, it's like a veritable Sergeant Pepper's. It is. It of is. Screen characters. characters. We've got the maniacal Mr. Punch. We've got the witch from the drowning pool, the creepy cat, ghastly McNasty himself, Dracula, the leper, and I assume that's meant to be Uncle Terry. Yeah, I'm thinking that the artist is Robin Smith. It could very well be. I, I couldn't quite place it. Normally it's a bit easier to pin down, but it's a really nice cover. Just this is what you're in for. Mm. As you say, issue 10 has Dracula by Eric Bradbury on the cover. Yes, lots of red. Lots of red. <laughs> and as you also said, um, issue 11, Jim Watson's Tales from the Grave. Dramatic dentistry diorama. But yeah. also, before we move on, uh, with a back cover, is this ghastly McNasty by Lee Williams of Gwent? Is this the first time in an IPC comic fan art gets the whole back page? Probably one piece of fan art, because I can think of 2000 AD greater out, particularly in the early issues, but it would usually be lots of different bits submitted oh, okay. by, by readers. But this is yeah, one reader's heart. Wow. Plus five pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think Barry did quite well there, cheap at a fiver. <laughs> yeah. But my pick, even though it was very well done and for kudos to Lee, my pick is the stunning issue 12, Terror of the Tomb, wraparound cover by Casanovas. Hard agree. It's beautiful. Beautiful it in is. detail. And while we haven't quite got there in the summary yet, lovely stuff. Lovely stuff, Casanovas. Um, speaking of the artwork, the entries are starting to come in on Ghastly's face. Yes. So guess what Ghastly's face looks like under that hood? Yeah, a lot of tentacles. I still think the 50 quid's safe. <laughs> yes, Grant Cregan of Dundee. I see what you did there, giving him the face of what looks like Iron Maiden's Eddie. Also in the copy art, there is a Knight of the Demon face. I didn't get the name. I do apologise. Ah, but Ghastly does. He drops a little hint in there. He's his rather demonic-looking face or something. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. Fair enough. Ghastly's not fair. Ghastly also sets a TV quiz in um, one of the issues as yes. Well. Yeah. yes, quite nice. But inside number nine... <laughs> we see mail sent that sets the precedent for the screen production officers being 29 levels below King's Reach Tower. And Peter, I've got to admit, it doesn't feel like anything more than 24 down here. I know, I know. What they've done with the space is amazing. Also, readers are referred to as surface dwellers, are colorated thugs, earthlets. <laughs> 
Terry Wogan is sent to the London Dungeon. And, and Larry Grayson. And, yes, and following issues, Larry Grayson and Keith Chedwin. I was going to say with Terry Wogan, that's a probably a nice change for the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> However, I did like, I think, in issue 10, it almost looks like Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keith Chedwin's werewolf eyes, so it's actually sort of painted... Yes. over the uh, photo that's a nice work as well later on there's the wild family who get similar treatment yeah i agree it's quite good it it beats the pants off the glamorous teachers and eagle mm. actually similar sort of artwork for the london dungeon it is yeah but is well, probably a house style yeah there is a caption competition in which the creepiest element is probably that michael jackson's in it yes it's a still from the thriller video it's probably never resolved, but maybe, Peter, we could run it on the Facebook page and see what the listeners Ooh, think. Good idea. Yeah. Mm. There's one thing I did want to mention, and that I didn't have very much to say. Only two ads for the entire month. Yes. There's an FX model ad. Mm-hmm. And, and the other, other one is for... It's a video magazine called Flash. Oh, yes. So you go to your local video shop and hide the video. I wonder if they rip the cover off after when they, before they send it back to the <laughs> supplier. Um, yeah, the only other thing I would say in the in our tradition of not really talking about the Ernie the Eagle comics, fiends and neighbours mm. have a run of stories um, which we can sum up as trouble with the washing line, uh, a new meaning to the word bricking it, and <laughs> don't throw trowels, you silly woman. Which is ironically what I'd be saying about twenty years later with the premiere of Torchwood. Right. <laughs> okay. But but speaking of an odd cornucopia of random assortments, Peter. It's the Library of Death and Ghastly Tales by lots of people. <laughs> so as you know, um, Library of Death and Ghastly Tales are a mixture of one-off stories. Ghastly Tales quite often just one page. The Ghastly Tale for issue nine is The Summoning. Under a clouded night sky, a torch-bearing procession files into an old decaying cemetery, seeking a particular grave. Reaching it, they dig and retrieve an ancient coffin, which they circle, chanting an unholy um, um. <laughs> Clearly somebody forgot to bring the lyrics. I was going to say, they're very, they're very indecisive Satanists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the leader speaks. Agnaton, demon of darkness, hear your servants, restore life to the withered, rotting bones within. To a chorus of ums, the coffin lifts, shifts, and in a swirling mist of one-eyed bag of bones rises. Do you guys mind keeping the noise down? Some of us are trying to get some rest. <laughs> the end. Barry? <laughs> yeah, probably. I'm sure there's actually a 2080 future shock in the 90s of this where they go to the Sidonian Plains and wake up a lot of cats or something in a tomb who basically say the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Big Affair in issue 9 is the Library of Death story which is by Fred Baker and Mike Dory lettering by Jake Hobb. It's called mm. Ghost Town. No relation to the special song. <laughs> in the Old West a newfangled automobile crashes into the remote town, the first car the local folk have ever seen. But their wonder is short-lived, as the vehicle's brakes are jammed, careening into an inconveniently placed dynamite store. In a fiery explosion, the horseless carriage and the town are soon just a smoking crater, with one wounded survivor gasping, Murderers! Murderers! Fifty years later, a sleek fifties coupe refuels at Sam's gas on a desert road. Its occupants ask Old Sam for directions back to the highway. 
Carry on down here a mite and make a left by the tall cactus about 20 mile on. You can't go wrong. They hit off at the direction. Bravo, of... your accents. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they hit off, and as they do, Sam calls the local sheriff just to let them know that they're coming. Uh, but the directions lead nowhere, and as they turn back, a low-hatted sheriff with a shotgun stops them and climbs into the car. I'm taking you in. He lifts his head, and his face is a grinning skull. Skeletal mania. <laughs> Taken to an old town, the pair are dragged into the sheriff's office for a fair trial. Quote, uh, for murder, the onlooking villagers are also skeletons, and they're a mite unruly. The sheriff is knocked out cold by a thrown rock during the kerfuffle, and the young men block the door, grab guns, and flee through the other side of the office. But they're intercepted and shot dead. Self-defense, sheriff. They drew first. Their bodies are laid to rest in a cemetery, headlines marking many unknown car drivers from near <laughs> nearly a century. <laughs> A week no, later, just, yeah. I've just realised, Peter, it's Boot Hill. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> but of course, that's, that's a joke that's only, <laughs> that only non Americans are going to get. <laughs> a week later, another car fills up at Old Sam's garage. Its driver getting the same directions, heading off as Sam removes his mask to make a skeletal call to the sheriff. <laughs> nice. Uh, that's entrapment, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. No, bushwhacking random drivers. Other than that, the vengeful dead don't seem too evil, really. But just that's not quite right. No, no, and, and you know, murderers. Oh, I'm no, they're skeletons anyway. Evil skeletons. Issue, issue ten. The ghastly tale is called "Goodbye, Uncle George." Cameo by Sylvester McCoy. <laughs> yes, we open at the funeral of George Ashcroft dedicated scientist and experimentalizer. Poor George. Nobody at his service actually regrets the weirdo's death, especially after his last invention, the so-called life potion. Goodbye forever, Uncle George. You can take your silly potion with you. It gets tossed onto his fresh grave. And while his niece and nephew-in-law rest in their new George-free home, months of steady dripping Later, out of the soil, erupts bow-tied, boffin-haired, mouldering Uncle George and glorious <laughs> yuck the colour on the front, on the back page. Oh, it's very silly, but Uncle George has just got a twinkle in his eye. He's the cutest zombie we've ever did seen. I like to think he's tap dancing on his own grave. <laughs> <laughs> he's very endearing for a zombie. He is. Uh, we've seen this one before, and I think in the first Eagle Annual, with the zombie dog and the, the light <gasps> oh potion. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> and the Ellen Moore twins or something. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> talk about callbacks. Yes, talk about cobras. <laughs> oh. Library of Death. For that issue is Night of the Cobra by Angus Allen, art by Vivash, lettering by Pete Knight. Concentrate now, because between Singapore and Malaysia is the Kai Tech Laboratory, known locally as the House of Death. But really, to its director, Vincent Dean, a special world of snakes. Yes, when it comes to herpetology, Dean really does have the love bug. But newcomer Driscoll is unimpressed. He's only in it for the money, and Dean warns him not to underestimate their scaly subjects. 
Driscoll's unmoved, however, and when a local cobra crosses into his hut porch that night, he finishes off by drowning it in extinguisher foam, then skins it as a trophy. It's a skin on his wall. Outside, another cobra senses something amiss and looks for its mate. Surely enough, its miss is a miss. <coughs> the next afternoon, Driscoll skips a lecture by Dean on the habits of cobras and takes a nap in his hut. But when he wakes, it's evening and the electricity is off. Lighting a candle, he's spooked by the breeze, and then the flickering shadows make the snakeskin seem most alive. He tries to sleep, but sees another snake at the foot of his bed, a king cobra which strikes and fouls Driscoll. As he slumps, he knocks over the candle and the hut catches light. His colleagues race to his aid, but the nearby extinguisher is strangely already spent. Nearby, the cobra slips back into the jungle, undetected. And that's Night of the Cobra. Mm-hmm. Very sucky, Kipling-esque type story. Yeah, yeah. Vengeful animal rather than a supernatural force. But it's actually not bad. I do like the art. Very workmanlike and business as usual type stuff. I still don't know why the Kitech Laboratory is known locally as the House of Death. <laughs> because of all the fat beats they drop. It's like, the House I, of I Death. Guess. Like, I guess. Ah, issue 11. Ah, ghastly Tale, number 11. Behind the door. I think this one might be by Barry. A boy cowers in front of a door, white clouds billowing forth as it is ajar. I suppose I've got to open the door. I must be brave. It might not happen. Sorry, I almost wish it Frank Spencer then. <laughs> but it does. <laughs> oh, Betty. <laughs> Some mothers do literally have them. Peter. Well, read on. <laughs> A hand appears through the mist and grabs her shoulder, dragging him in. It has to be done. You will obey me. It's his mum. Do as you're told and have a bath. That's the end of it. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> yes, it was awful. Ah, slightly better. The Library of Death. Ghost Dance by Angus Allen. Art by Mario Capaldi. No relation. Lettering by Jacob. The downtown freaks are the hot new act on the scene. Halloween costumed musicians fronted by the skeleton-suited Nick Nasty. The fans love them and their act, but Nick thinks it's down to him, and backstage after another rip-snorter of a gig, band tensions boil over into a scuffle, which is broken up by their manager, Arthur Gibbs, who says he's found them a location for their new video, Doomly Abbey. I'm sure he's previously worked with Frank Pimple. <laughs> the freaks are to a man spooked, except a scoffing Nick, and his lack of belief in the supernatural is picked up by the Abbey's old caretaker, who reassures the rest of the band that the Abbey's residents are caring to those who believe. The video shoot goes well, especially when two realistic hooded skeletons join in from nowhere. Even Nick is impressed, but when he mentions them later to Gibbs, his manager doesn't know what he's on about. The video screens later that day. That is hellishly good editing, Dave. Eurovision, man. Yeah. Remember Lordy in Eurovision? Of course. I've seen Lordy live, Dave. Oh, wow. Well done. Here in Wellington, yeah, they were here for a heavy metal extravaganza with Ozzy Osbourne and Poison and Kiss and oh, Alice Cooper. Yeah. Couldn't miss that. Oh, Lordy. But the video, again, features no dancers. Nick swears they were there. The freaks never saw them. Shocked, Nick's hair goes white. They were real ghosts. He believes now, says the old caretaker to two spectral figures next to him on the sofa. Don't you agree, my friends? 
skeletal mania. It's all a bit of monkey magic, I think. It is. <laughs> uh, right. Not bad. A bit too 80s, possibly. But yeah. I do wonder, the, the derelict old house in the band, is it Downton Shabby? <laughs> <laughs> the final cut is the last grassy tale. I think maybe the art might be by Brendan McCarthy, or Jim McCarthy. Yes, I thought the same. It has that look. It's got very thick lines. Mm, mm, bad company-ish. Script by, well, ghastly. In a gothic chapel, a hunchback with a dagger rounds on a ponytailed hero, bound and helpless. Cut! Scrap that, it wasn't good enough. I'll say. We're on a film set, and the director calls for another take. It's a horror movie. We're trying to make a horror here, not a comedy. He says, <laughs> it's a horrible movie, I'll give it that. <laughs> These scenes have got to have more impact. Three scenes later, they're in a new scene. The hunchback has his knife, the hero's climbing a rope, high up a tower, and... Cut! So the hunchback does. The hero falls to his death. The end. He wanted reality. Puntastic. Punishment nearly over, because the library of death is terror of the tomb. Script by Simon Thurman, art by Casanovas, lettering by Jacob. In Egypt, 2000 BC, the vile Kare is entombed alive for his wickedness, sentenced, as they do, to eternal unlife, his soul trapped in a pyramid tomb. If you accuse me, then let my evil be undying. Others will surely join me in eternal torment, Kare promises. Centuries later, the explorer, Blake, finds the same pyramid tomb, the last known location of his missing friend Morris, lost now for twenty years. <laughs> Not that good a friend, obviously. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, I got there at the end. <laughs> With his colleagues dying from fever or infection, Morris enters the tomb alone and easily finds its prize. Not, not that good friends. <laughs> <laughs> I get the feeling that people are just sort of willing to let Morris go. <laughs> He's just not being good at being unfriended. He finds its prize, the chamber of Kare, and its treasures. But inside the tomb, there are two sarcophagi, and the obsessed Morris prizes the second sarcophagus, open to find the trapped skeleton of his missing friend. He was buried alive, but by whom? <laughs> As he reels in the darkness, the first sarcophagus opens, and out steps the mummy of Kare. Again, my rest is disturbed. Again I extract my unending revenge. Morris draws his gun and shoots, but the bullets are useless. How can you kill what does not live? And as he scrambles away, Morris falls into a floor covered with the skeletal remains of so many others who entered the tomb before him. Skeletal mania. A bandaged hand finds his face, and Morris's screams stop. Twenty years later, a new and enthusiastic explorer, young Howard Jackson, reaches the tomb in search of the missing Morris. What are we dangerous, Jackson? warns his mate. Jackson brushes it aside, and in the dark of the tomb lies a new sarcophagus inscribed in English, reserved for Howard Jackson. Ba -ba -ba. It's the summoning done better? <laughs> yes, at least. <laughs> Although the only thing I'd point out is, is the full name is Kare Bar. I don't know if that's a pun of something, or is it meant to be Carol Bar, or... I don't know. Oh. Milky Bar? I don't know. 
It's lovely. I do love my, myself some Casanova's art. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I think it's the pick for me. A little wordy, possibly, but yeah. I mean, Ghost Town was also strong. Mm-hmm. But no, I think this deserved having its wraparound colour of its own. Yes, definitely. Next episode, Sea Biscuit. I mean, Sea Beast. <laughs> ah. Library of Death is a bit tricky because it's better than The Collector and Eagle. You've got mm-hmm. to give it a bit of credit for bringing the scares, at least. Sometimes it can be a bit silly. And and the, the Ghastly Tales at least have the decency to only be a page. Mm. This does sort of reach the point where I, I begin to wonder about the sort of the density of screen. Maybe it's just because, you know, you and I are doing synopses for these stories, but every issue it's a whole new set of characters, it's a whole new story mm. to go alongside the long form stories. And boy, I mean you get your money's worth with screen. But I really wonder what the comic's actually based around. Is it based around long form stories or is it based around short, sharp shocks? And I think maybe the latter is the one. I think so. I mean, the, the Library of Death stories are about... Four, they have an extra page or so. Mm. And, but you say that, but, you know, the, the Dracula and 30th Floor are doing quite a bit of hard yards, and they're packing a lot in. So, you know, while still being shocking. Mm. Speaking, Peter, of perhaps packing a lot in, <laughs> it's The Nightcomers. Story by Tomb Tully. Art by John Richardson. Letters by P. Bensberg. Previously on the Nightcomers, the ghost-hunting parents of Rick and Beth Rogan have been killed under mysterious circumstances at the mysterious house called Raven's Meat, owned by Simon Cutler. As they arrived at the building, they discover mysterious footprints burning themselves into the ground. This time, trying to prove it's all a trick, Rick races towards the tracks, only to be swatted aside by a demonic form in the darkness. The two kids run for the woods, trying to escape the spectral entity, but it has them cornered and it moves in for the kill. Then Beth has a vision of her mother, who tells her to use the power of the amulet. <laughs> and by pulling her Egyptian aunt Nicholas, Chekhov's talisman, Beth mm. exorcises her right to life and dispels the dark malevolent monster with an Eleni out of Starlord Eyeshot. Starlord Othon, never forget. <laughs> Side quest completed, they return to the house, finding the place where their parents died in the car crash, and another psychic flash tells Beth her parents were murdered. Then the door to the house creaks open, and a torrent of thick crimson blood runs down the steps. Issue 10, as Rick struggles against the thick, viscous flow, Beth realizes this is all just an illusion like the other one wasn't <laughs> and uses her newfound psychic powers to dispel the torrent of red and finally four weeks into the adventure the rogans finally enter the house jesus <laughs> they find the dead dog from part one of the story now back in its normal dog form and rip drags it outside and goes to bury it in the woods at night by himself yeah the psychic investigators, these two aren't that bright. Well, I think Rick's the less bright, isn't he? Maybe the more logical, I don't know. Well, he's the scully. He's the scully, yes. While Beth explores the spooky manor and its morphing paintings, Hogwarts the Saint, mm-hmm. Rick is accosted and knocked unconscious by Cutler and his looming deformed mad servant, Aldo. Because we've got an Aldo now. 
Aldo slings the senseless Rick over his shoulder and the two crooks set out to burn Raven's meat to the ground along with everything and anyone in it. Issue 11. While Beth fights off further psychic attacks and flying furniture, Aldo and Cutler arrive in a small outbuilding with an old brick-lined well in it. Cutler wants Aldo to start a blaze with a can of kerosene he's carrying. But the big man is frightened of fire, and we get a bit of backstory about how Aldo was disfigured by one of Cutler's failed experiments with black magic. Cutler liberally splashes... Cutler liberally splashes and the accelerant around him... Cutler liberally... <laughs> Cutler liberally splashes the accelerant around himself. This is what happens when you put adverbs at the beginning of sentences, Dave. <laughs> Cutler liberally splashes the accelerant around by himself if you want a job done properly before lighting a match. <laughs> but just then, Beth rushes in, looking for her brother, and the match drops, and poor Aldo is set alight before flailing around oh, and God. tumbling down the well. <laughs> Bye, Aldo, because we don't have an Aldo now. <laughs> Rick wakes up and starts battling the flames while Craven Cutler makes a break for the woods, but he is confronted by a ghostly figure. Cowardly Cutler. Cutler pleads with the ghost, sorry for the accident, plot point, begging it to leave him alone. It screams at him, Ghostbusters librarian style, and he flees into the woods. Meanwhile, Beth and Rick get the fire under control after Beth psychically finds the old fire extinguisher. Beth can also tell there is something wrong with the well. Apart from the burning Aldo, that is. Uh, something sad and angry. Apart from the burning Aldo, that is. And tragic, apart from the burning Aldo. <laughs> and to do with a woman who's not Aldo. One looking very much like Cutler's ghost. She convinces Rick not to call the police, but to investigate further. Rick, Wolfie Smith, clone, and the voice of reason. Mm. While nearby, a skulking Cutler hatches a plan to sacrifice the children to the house to make it leave him alone. Hashtag, gotta kill those kids. <laughs> Back inside the main manor, the two Rogans explore, finding occult articles from around the world. Beth wants to find the supernatural brain or heart of this building, hopefully not Terror the Cat style, and Rick just wants to be out of there. But while they forage, an eerie spectral hand rises from its resting place on a table and floats up behind them. Because it's not a Tom Tully story without a disembodied hand. That's not it. <laughs> All we need is someone, was it uh, Nasher or what is it? Ah, oh, ah, oh, yeah, Jaws. Jaws, there you go. Yeah. All we need is some Jaws. 13th floor, we already used the sharks. So. Yeah. Next time, the hand of horror. <laughs> There's so much going on. There's so much hurts. going on. It's, the plot's moving, the art's great, but while there's so much going on, it seems really clunky because all these mm. bits are bumping into each other and bashing around. We're in the house. We're out of the house. We're back in the house. We've got an Aldo. We've lost an Aldo. The villains are running away. They're screaming, and then they're back scheming. Bah! It's a ghost. It's a demon. It's a well. It's a dog. It's an illusion. It's a hand. It's an occult library. Uh, I, I think I think part of it is also Richardson's artwork. It's high on atmosphere, but I think it's not so high on storytelling, and it, it clashes with everything being thrown into the mix. In fairness, there may be something about how we're reading this too. I mean, we are doing 
quite big info dumps of it. Mm. Mm. We're not having a week to digest. And let's be fair, we're not twelve. You know, it's it's not the crew. Oh, yeah. this awesome, this awesome, this <laughs> awesome, this awesome. So um, yeah, but whew, she's busy. She is, and that's the month. So with that, Peter, and and if it's not an oxymoron, what's the best of the worst of Scream for you? Um, I will always like the 13th floor because it has a wonderful sense of humour and wonderful art. I feel like it's a bit mean to always be picking it. So if I can't have the 13th floor, I'll say... Oh, I really like the the Egyptian tomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Egyptian tomb. Okay, because so library empty. Excellent. Yeah. And, and how about your worst of the worst, which is sort of, again... Is, is, it, is it bad or better? Uh, the horror of bath time, probably. <laughs> it is low-hanging fruit. Extremely low-hanging fruit. And, and what about you, Dave? What have you got? Um, look, for best, it's tied between the Dracula Files and the 13th floor. Mm-hmm. Both are building towards something. They're both setting up a lot of atmosphere. Mm. Um, and knowing now what I didn't know then, I'm going to say it's Dracula because, you know, 13th floor is going to have room to grow. Yeah, it's got a future ahead of it. It does, too. And the worst, um, with the caveat that we can't have fiends and neighbours, and the ghastly tales are one and dones, you know. I agree with you about bath time, but it has the decency to not take more than a page. I'm actually going to say it's the nightcomers. It's all over the place. It's not bad, but crikey. Yeah, I can't disagree with either of those. I just didn't feel like being mean to your stories, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. Dracula's always got that, that atmosphere. Uh, the grime. Um, yes. And, yeah, nightcomers. But, yes, uh, shall, we, shall we head for the doors? Yeah, yeah. yeah I feel like yeah. some fresh air, don't you? Yes. Yeah. yes. But, but, dear listener, just be aware that next time we hit the end game. Three more issues to go for Scream. Dracula parties like it's 1789. Yes. <laughs> Max finds some island time. The leopard, ta- the leopard takes one final undertaking. And Uncle Terry goes to the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, shall we head to the rooftop patio? Ah, oh, I want to be out of the open air again. Fresh air at last! <laughs> good old H2O. We could really get a good view from up here. Make a wish. What? Shooting star over there, see? That's not a shooting star. It looks like some sort of... Spaceship. Yeah, yeah. See how it spins. It looks like that free giveaway on the cover of Eagle Number One, but with fewer fins than the free giveaway on the cover of Eagle Number One Hundred. Good job, but there's a landing pad up here. I was wondering what all these giant bird bones were doing lying around here. Ooh, there's a hatch opening. We come in peace. We come in peace. I think they're supposed to say that, Peter. Who was it in there? Borak dog Earthlets. <laughs> oh, it's Conrad from Space Spinner Two Thousand. Yeah, you know, I was out with the neighborhood, despite to stop by for a bite to eat. You know, we're further along in the timeline now, so we're based out of Camden Triangle instead of King's Reach. But, you know, figured I'd pop over. How's it going? <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, it's, all good. it's all good. Welcome to the world of Scream, Conrad. Thank you. I'm very excited, very excited to be here. I'm glad you guys are, are continuing this project, for sure. Like, I've, I've enjoyed the Scream and Scream, Scream Again episode so far, and really, re- really excited to be asked on and talk about... Another one of these little little corners of British comics that I've always seemed to be finding my way into these days. 
Excellent. Yeah. Had we known it was going to be so far between episodes, you know, we might have had you on a bit earlier, but hey. It's hard to tell with these things, you know. I mean, it's been a, it's, it's, it's been a year. I think we can all, all agree on that, you know. It Most has. Definitely. Yeah. Do you want to give us a quick background of where you're from in terms of IPC and English comics, Conrad? Oh, of course. Yeah. So I, I host the Space Spinner 2000 podcast along with my friend Fox, where we, um, you know, very similar to Where Eagles Dare, I guess, we look at 2000 AD and we cover about a month of, of, of uh, issues there every week. We've been chugging along since, I guess, October 2016, managed to keep things pretty weekly right. at this point. So now at this point... We recently celebrated our fourth anniversary and we're sort of, you know, just reaching the end of 1990, heading into 1991, where things start getting spicy with <laughs> the galaxy's greatest, as, as everyone likes to warn us, you know. <laughs> but that adventure's also included a bunch of side projects, I think. You know, I'm, I'm an American, obviously, so a lot of these um, British comics, like, just the background of it's very, very new to me. And this sort of and all the stuff around it, things like the like the New Eagle and Scream, for instance, are things where, you know, if I know about them, it's because I, I've seen them in like the advertisement pages of 2000 <laughs> AD or something. And, and and very little else. These comics never really made it onto the newsstands here in the States that I saw, at least. And so part of that, for instance, that I've done has been looking at the comic Action from 1976, which has a very mm -hmm. which has very like formative role in these in this generation of British comics, I guess that I think mm -hmm. um, Scream draws a lot from as well. We had a a spinoff show called uh, Space Spinner Reaction, which I think you guys were both on. Yeah, just talk about a couple uh, action comics and some Dredger and Hook Jaws and so forth. And then more recently, we did a big uh, live stream called the Star Lordathon, which was about the uh, comic Star Lord, which of course was a 2008 kind of spin-off that was eventually folded into it, and the start of Britcom characters like Astronium Dog and ABC and uh, Robusters, I should say, which became ABC Warriors, in which you guys were also on. So you know, I feel like very close relationship here. It's good times. I know I was on, on an Eagle special with you, and you've been on on Space Spinner a few times as well. It's just sort of, you know, we've yeah. got to stick together, all of us British comics podcasters. Not many of us, you know, so <laughs> got to mix our forces, you know. Yeah. Not many of us, but covering a lot of territory. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we're a bit more uh, real time. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> than, 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 than Space Spinner, which is fine. doing exceptionally well. <laughs> and has been you an know. inspiration to us all, may I say. Indeed. Listen, my my Ahab like quest to to make to get Space Spitter out on a weekly basis is not a is not a great model for anyone in terms of mental health or other other, other non podcast related aspects of your life. I can't I can't stress it enough. <laughs> so, in terms of IPC, that's a really good backing. I was wondering, Conrad, about um, horror comics. Did you have those growing up as a kid? Did you sort of you know read any of the sort of the the reprints that came out? Not really. I think when I was growing up, I was mostly in superhero stuff, your your X-Men and things like that. But I mean, I, I, I will say, I remember as a kid, there was a lot of like horror reading, I guess. I was thinking there's a there's a pretty classic like children's book here in the States called uh, In a Dark, Dark Room, which is a book that's specifically, which is specifically a book of like, maybe funny, maybe scary horror, like, like horror-esque stories mm -hmm. that's specifically for like second graders, which is like, maybe like six or seven years or a seven-year-old or something like that. Or are there other books that 
there's famous ones like uh, this series called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, mm. which is another yeah. series of books that we've got with which I know scarred a, um, a generation of kids, myself included, <laughs> with their terrifying illustrations. Um, but even then, and, and even though I think the the writing for those was much more of the like we're adapting a couple Twilight Zone episodes sort of into a book here or something like that. Sure, but it was still. I think there is this market for you know even w- whether it's in comic books or not, f- you know, among kids for sort of scary things. I guess hmm. it's very child adjacent, isn't it? The idea of sort of a safe scare. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the sort of like a scare that's also kind of a laugh or something like that. It's just mm. sort of yeah, it's 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 just enough to be spooky, but not really enough to like give you too many nightmares or anything like that. I guess. So I guess the embodiment there, we have Scream comic, and um, yes. we we assume you've had a a look at some issues now. Absolutely, yeah. I've 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 looked at these ones. You have, I should say, um, in. In relation to Space Spinner, these ones came out around the same time as Prague's um, 368 to 372, which is like in the early 100s of our show, just the um, just for the crossover of the times here, stuff which was kind of interesting to me. I'm not sure what that means in terms of Prague's. It's, uh, it's the Astronium Dog story Outlaw is oh, going. Yeah. I think alongside Scream 9 is the is the story of Judge Dredd where Dave the Orangutan is, is elected mayor. Yep. <laughs> Um, (laughs) it's like right towards the end of, uh, of the original Rogue Trooper. It's the message from Millicom story with that one. Yeah. 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 Cool. I was definitely a reader then. Do you feel a similar style or ethos of the time, given they're both out of the same stable with that run of 2000 AD is, you know, it's very different to what you're getting in the late eighties, early nineties generally. Yeah, I mean, I, there's d- definitely a ton of overlap in, in the talent, for mm. sure. Just these sort of similar artists, similar writers of we're seeing in 2000. It actually fe- felt kind of nostalgic to see folks like Ortiz or Casanova, Servidondo and, and Adori, and then, and then mm. uh, the Wagner-Grant combine still being in effect, Jerry Finley Day writing, stuff like that. These are... Folks who I, I have like nostalgia for because we've moved past them in, in Space Spinner, but sort of take me back to a different time in, in 2000 AD and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like an old pair of shoes. Yeah, they, you sort of get back in. It's like, ooh, this is comfortable. Although I'd say, and I think you've mentioned this actually in, in your Scream coverage, that the construction of Scream, and I think Eagle 2 is actually pretty different from 2000 AD. And now it's 2000 AD at this point has four to five stories in it, basically. Mm-hmm. And they have a much more, I don't know, maybe I kind of think of it as, as an American construction where there's sort of a, like a splash page and there's sort of, you know, a lot of, you know, more room for art and stuff. Scream has more of like an action feel mm. where there's eight stories and everything's very sort of, you know, because there's limited space, most things are three pages long and thing and stuff. So there's... There needs to be, to be much more economy mm. in the uh, in, in the storytelling. We have noticed, particularly with this run of issues, they do tend to pack it all in a lot. Really dense, yeah. <laughs> Especially with Tom Tully, where it's like, okay, here's the drawful of things. 
<laughs> I mean, that's the magic of Tom Tully, to be honest. I'm just he's like a goldfish where he'll sort of expand. He'll he'll have the same amount of content no matter how much space you give him, I think. <laughs> and so sometimes that can be a mean arena story where not a lot happens every time, but it could also be a ghost story where not where you also still have those same mysterious hands and other things like that. <laughs> just sort of you know. continuing uh, plot devices and stuff. Did you have any clear highlights from what you read? I mean, I really like the Dracula file, I think. Honestly, mostly because I I love Eric Bradbury's art. He's got a really distinctive, he's really good at like gross stuff is what Mm. I want to say, or or scary stuff as well. So I think the way he draws Dracula, it it almost feels like a throwback, I guess, to Mm. me. I mean, I guess maybe it was on time in 84, but I feel like because of maybe Anne Rice or something um, originally, and that's sort of building into maybe the uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula movie, and then like Twilight even or something, or uh, or something, you know, vampires become way more romantic. Mm. Mm. I guess they start as romantic as well. Now that I'm thinking about it, but I feel like there's a period where vampires are. We're more just about drinking that blood, and your protagonist would be the vampire hunter, as opposed to now, where I think generally, you know, the vampire is the he- is the hero or antihero in their own story, which is sort of different mm, for, for sure for Dracula file. Yeah, I wonder whether that's a Hammer horror trope. Mm. The count is more the sort of force of nature rather than a a character you specifically identify with. I mean, our friend Al Hughes may beg to differ, but that's where I'm sticking my stake in the ground. And to me, it also sort of means that Scream is really finger-tapping a specifically sort of UK-centric idea of horror rather than, you know, the Hollywood style, the Universal Studios and so forth. I mean, I got to say, from my youth, I mean, I I was born in 1980, I guess, so I'm more online maybe a year or two later. But by then, like, as a kid, like, Dracula's mostly a joke at at this point. Mm. You know, like, my main Dracula things are, like, like a Count Chocula or um, (laughs) or the Count on Sesame (laughs) Street or something like that. The idea of having especially not just a vampire but literal Dracula in something and have it be played straight, I guess, is, is, is a departure. As opposed to just being a, a total joke, although there is fu- there are humorous elements in, in, in the Dracula file, for the record. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it is rather dark, though. It's not <laughs> Well, Scream's got this dichotomy in it. Like, I feel like especially Dracula file and, uh, and Monster both are sort of like they go both ways, right? Where mm. Dracula file goes between Dracula brutally attacking people and stuff. And like his bumbling minions, like putting his grave dirt in the bathtub or something like that, <laughs> sure. you know. Sure. Uh, and I mean, and I mean, Monster is like even more than that. I was really struck by how Redondo draws Terry's like when he has these violent like, like eruptions and stuff. He they're drawn very viscerally and very like like physically the damage he does, the people he hurts and kills. Mm. But then, like, it's so crazy that then it's like in a sketch comedy show where they're trying to build up to that one punchline they do every episode. Yes. But the, the punchline for Monster is is Kenny standing over a bunch of dead bodies <laughs> saying, not again. <laughs> womp, womp. Like, it's ridiculous, you know? 
That's my uncle. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is, what are this you is rough do? stuff. Because <laughs> he's racking up bodies as he goes. Like, he's not just a love... <laughs> like, it'd be one thing if he was, like, a lovable, you know, ugly guy who's sort of like, oh, no, stop hounding me. I've got to escape. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, I mean, he's, he's killed five people at this <laughs> yeah. point, one way or another. He's, he's got a bigger uh, Deadpool than, um, you know, than the uglies in, in Eagles. Yeah, story. Exactly. There were four of them. Thirteenth <laughs> floor. Any particular comments? Oh yeah. Sorry, I, that that one just had less of the humor stuff in it. I love the thirteenth floor. There's again an issue nine. Um, that opening scene of Mister Nelson dodging the cars on the highway was really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, this art by Ortiz because I think the way it's drawn, there's so much white space on, on the motorway where Mr. Uh, Nelson is. And then the cars come out of nowhere at him almost makes it feel very dreamlike, almost like a nightmare of you being stuck on the road or something, which I guess it literally is, mm. but sort of, I don't know, evokes the feeling of that within me, I mm. guess, by, by seeing it. <laughs> but I do really like how, um, I think so. I mentioned this last time, but just how all the bad guys that Max takes out in the 13th floor are these terrible people. And so you really root for this murderous building AI, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Like that he takes out the crooked plumber, the government official that's breaking up families because of a, a clerical error he made and stuff like that. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, this is fine. Like, I'm not. I'm not against this, I guess. Like, I'm surprised that 12 issues in now, they haven't... Like, I, I feel like I've I've seen at least, like, three U.S. horror movies about this scenario, I guess, mm-hmm. or something like that. A movie where there's a haunted elevator or, or something. Or alternately, where there's a ghost that has morals. And there is sort of a, usually a turning point where, at first, you're on the ghost side, but then you see that, like, oh, but then it, like, kills somebody for picking their nose or something like that and it's like oh they've gone mad with power you know that kind of thing it's gone full show dread <laughs> yeah exactly you know where it's like oh we can't maybe i guess we can't just leave the policing of morality up to a rogue ai in a, in a, in a council block like i would have i would have assumed it'd be different you know <laughs> i'll just say watch the space conrad <laughs> fair enough fair, fair enough i'm definitely like i don't know like i'm sort of I feel like I've I've got enough genre savvy to be to sort of be waiting for it, I guess. But I'm really I'm really digging Thirteenth Floor. Like Max's ability as a hollow deck from like Star Trek is, is super amazing. Just making these giant seascapes, water disappearing and reappearing at a at, at a flash, all this kinds of stuff. <laughs> like it's it's at least as ghost as it is technical, you know. Well, that's my story, Dave. I'm happy. I was going to say, and I suppose the elephant in the room is the ghastly tales and the, the library of death, given the space spinner response to things like future shocks. <laughs> well, I'll say also, I was surprised at the Nightcomers just oh, okay. as a story, just because there's actually a uh, a story with the same name as in the 2000 AD sci-fi special, which came out at the same time, actually, uh, the sci-fi, the 1984 sci-fi special, mm-hmm. which was a story. It was written by uh, Chris Lauder and is sort of has a time quake connection, I guess, but it's also called the Nightcomers, which is sort of weird, like, I don't know, name crossover, I guess. But just in name only. 
Yeah, de- yeah, they're they're very different because the 2000 East story is about someone time traveling to some kind of like gang war in like the 30s or something. But man, I was surprised at how many anthology stories there are in this comic. I guess it makes sense because it's harder to have a continuing story about horror stuff mm. just because so many horror punchlines are and then they die, you know, mm. or there's no real problem or whatever. So it's like, you know. You either have to have someone nearly dying and it's like, why are you still doing this? Or just the same kid who has a series of uh, stories like like the bath one in this oh, episode. <laughs> We're just like, all right, kid, like you got to like stop being so melodramatic because, you know, <laughs> we're trying to get by here. I wonder uh, to an extent whether Eagle sort of ate screams lunch uh, hmm. starting out. You know, the collector has those grim stories anyway. And yeah. we loved House of Damon, which is not greatly removed from the 13th floor you know you have possessed house it's basically a haunted house with a streak of justice or Mm -hmm. um, you know with a will of its own and its ability to sort of create phantasmagoric landscapes and everything i could sort of see where you know maybe barry tomlinson might have sort of said to alan grant yeah do that again Mm. but i've nothing to back that up but but yeah (laughs) the, the, the eagle sometimes crosses over into that territory and and lord knows some of the recent amstor computer stories dave we've pretty much said this should have been in screen <laughs> yeah it's that it's it's having that twist i think you know it's it's the problem of of i guess eagle sort of having such a, a wide potential story base that it can mm. sort of if you're thinking ghost stories it's going to pick some up anyway just sort of by, by, by the nature of these things mm. and with the screen potentially falling over in a couple of issues all the stuff in the drawers has to go somewhere amstor computer <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'd imagine it is because, as I recall, Screams canceled because of a of a, of a comic strike, not because mm. particularly because of of failing things. I mean, it's it it doesn't have a long enough run for a standard cancellation, mm. is my understanding. Because because fifteen is an unusual number for <laughs> a British comic being canceled. It's almost always twenty two. And I know that its end coincides with this big multi month strike in in, mm. in UK comics. There is a bit in the uh, It's Ghastly book by Hibernia that sort of suggests that it, that was a very convenient excuse. Uh, and mm. there are other things happening in the background, particularly with editorial concerns about a horror comic, no matter how mild it may be. So, yeah, the full story may never be clearly played out. Ah, excellent. Yeah. A, uh, a mystery of ghastly, McNasty proportions itself. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> one thing that one thing that struck me this month is, uh, as I said, you know, in the episode, only two ads for four weeks, which just yeah. makes my head itch. Where's the revenue coming from? You know, what's 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 bankrolling this? Not stamps. Um, not stamps. <laughs> yeah, and, and so oh, come on, built my empire on stamps. <laughs> <laughs> what's bankrolling? Scream and and is this telling that they're not really finding a a willing market in um, retailers to sort of get behind? Mm. Them? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something I know. Yeah, I, I can only think of hypothetically, I guess. But but it's interesting to think of, of just how the market for these things go. I know that's something that's very – it's hard to research, I think, without having – like, I guess, going to England and finding the specific documents and stuff like that or getting people to talk about it. Mm. Probably a lot of it, you get the impression, was some guys in a back room sucking their fingers of it, guessing the, the, the direction of the wind. Yeah, absolutely. I th- and I think, you know, even just for, I know for 2000 AD, like, 
which I think has a little bit more complete history. Like you, if you read like the books about that, like uh, like Thrill Power Overlord or Steve McManus's book, for instance, you do get the sense of these suits that are sort of disconnected from things, sort of making guesses, basically. Yep. <laughs> You're trying to figure things out. I think even American comics are like that. I'd imagine they're in a similar situation where um, there's a lot of momentum with people at the top and it's hard to – it is hard to gauge all this stuff because it's not like now where you can where you can actually like poll people and stuff. You just got to kind of go by numbers and you're very much feeling in the dark, I think. Which is a very screen topic in itself. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So yeah, there's a balance or, or an imbalance, uh, if, if you see it that way, of the short, sharp shock of those sort of the – the twisty tales and and the the serialized. I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not sure whether it's, whether screens trying to be one thing or another. But I can sort of see the argument for having twist in the tale stories. I think there's a there's a long tradition of those in, you know, the comics I was alluding to before the uh, like the EC comics and Castle Absolutely, comics. Absolutely, yeah. But the longer running stories may have helped scream a little bit more in terms of it of its own longevity. And of course, as we know, two of the stories do survive. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I think you need these, you know, continuing serial comics just to have something to kind of to hang your hat on in these stories. Place your weekly order, please. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I feel like like wanting to know what Max is going to do next, for instance. I mean, that that makes Thirteenth Floor sort of a stealth anthology story, right? I I, th- I think you've talked about this a little bit, or I I haven't read a ton of it, but it seems like he's not interacting with the same families. Mm in the estate building every time or something like that, Max could be in any building where the plumbing breaks one day or any building where there's a jerk from the government who's sort of, you know, messing up with the housing process or something. Mm. And the connector is Max who's sort of meeting these things out. But it could, like, you could have it be like a a bunch of different buildings with a bunch of different of a rogue AIs or something like that if you really wanted to. There's nothing inherent (laughs) that links the 13th floor specifically to the Maxwell building besides the character of Max himself, I guess. Mm. He doesn't have like a teen sidekick or something, at, at least at this point. I don't know how it goes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I thought it was kind of interesting, actually, um, just talking about the more anthology stories, this um, Tales from the Grave story. I was really surprised that they brought in an additional character to be like the presenter for that uh, series, I guess. Mm. Maybe it's to set it in the 19th century or something like that. But I was just surprised that Ghastly wasn't hosting that, I guess, as opposed to this leper character. Uh, I, I think you're right. It's a way of evoking the Amicus Victoriana Penny Dreadful story. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's the difference between, um, I don't know if you've, you've encountered it in your future reading of 2008, the Black Museum curator and Tharg himself. Sure, yeah, but I mean, but I, I guess the difference is that we started having future shocks in the early days of the comic. They were Tharg's future shock because of, of uh, like developing the brand, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, it's sort of interesting that you'd bring in an additional presenter character for 10 issues in, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The only example I can think of in 2018, which would be better than the one I was just popped into my head, was Walter's no, Robot I think you're Tales. Right. Mm. Yeah, Rojas is Robot oh, right. Tales. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Get Walter out of here, buddy. Come on. But um, <laughs> It is a horror anthem. <laughs> For sure. I know what you mean. I'm just like, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of interesting. And I mm. think you're right. Because it seems like all the Tales from the Grave stories are in this sort of period London 
that makes sense to have him in there instead of Ghastly. But I thought it was interesting. Each issue has these th- has three anthology stories, and they all have their own branding, right? The Tales from the Grave, the mm. Library of Death, and then the Ghastly Tales or whatever. Like I was just talking about being able to hang your hat that they sort of have these different feels to him, I guess, that the grave mm. stories are sort of in this penny dreadful period. The library of, of death ones are a little bit uh, longer and more prestige, whereas the ghastly tales are shorter and sort of t- tend to be funnier and sort of are building to their to their specific punchline, I guess. Art of comic crafts, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you were talking previously about sort of like these relations with the future shocks in in 2000 AD. And I think they're serving slightly different purposes, I guess, just because I think mm. especially, especially library of death and tales from the grave feel like they're real, like stories. They've always, they're always about four pages long and they have a specific spot in the comic and stuff. Whereas I think for, for Fox and me on space spinner, like we don't include future shocks for worst because often we feel like their job is more about getting the comic up to a certain page count as opposed to a specific narrative purpose, I think. But Mm -hmm. I feel like especially not the one or two pages because those feel like they're the ones doing that job here. But some of these longer Mm -hmm. ones, I feel like, are more actual thrills, I guess, or actual stories that that should be, be weighted on their merits as opposed to being weighted for their utility within making the sure. comic long enough for something. <laughs> I guess the other thing is that the Tales in the Grave get the luxury of the color page. They get the color spread. Yeah, I mean, that's a telling detail for how serious they're taking it. You know, mm. I mean, that's not something that they just give out, the color page. That's a that's an important part of the comic, for sure. Uh, someone joked with me that I've done my 10,000 hours on, um, on on 2000 AD or whatever. So now now I'm taking out a mosquito with a with, with a flamethrower because I got I, I got I got deep I got deep scream thoughts now. You know, <laughs> sort of trying to get these out here. All right. Well, that's, yeah, that's, hit us, hit us. What have you got? No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, it, that's just sort of what I, what I was talking about was just sort of the difference in the anthology stories and stuff, and just just the ways this comic's put together differently than two than two thousand AD was at this time. Now you've pointed it out. Yes, and evil. Mm. Yeah, just I guess it's a, it, it's more of an old school aesthetic, I guess, of these more numerous, shorter stories, often told very sort of mm. cramped together and stuff that makes it really different from 2000 AD, which I think it's is with the same number of pages has fewer stories that have more room to breathe and sort of to show off their art and to have, again, what I think of as a more conventional or maybe American comic style than the British style where – a standard comic is three pages long with 12 panels per page or something like that. Mm, mm. I guess the thing to, to point out there is that, well, at least from its origin, it is working on an established format of the old Eagle comic. So mm-hmm. it was sort of working towards that template. Whether it sort of changed it after, say, issue 100 probably did slightly. And if you follow the argument that Scream is sort of trying to um, evoke a portmanteau style whether it's Amicus or, uh, you know, House of Hammer style. Um, the Da Vinci. Yeah. 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 Could could be a little bit of that. They might be the outliers. Uh, maybe um, we need to compare them with, with the other contemporaries that sort of eventually see their way into eagle-like tiger or battle and, and see what, what they more closely resemble. 
Not another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's going to happen. I think it's always really interesting. And uh, I mean, for me, I've come into these British comics late, pretty late in my life in comparison to people who started reading them when they were like children. It's amazing how many of them there are and just how wild and varied they can be. I have some jealousy, I guess, just because I feel I feel like American comics very much just kind of tell one kind of story, I guess. Like they just sort of, you know, it's just superheroes pretty much. Mm. I mean, there's definitely in recent years, there's been way more. But I mean, I remember being a kid and you'd go to like a convenience store or whatever to dr- a druggist as, sub- as, uh, as a commonwealth or might say or something like that. <laughs> and there'd just be the big thing of like comic books and they're all superhero, superhero comics. There's nothing else. Mm. And so the idea of all these, you know, here's uh, some sports comics, here's history, here, here's war comics, here's like contemporary stuff. Here's a horror comic. I guess, you know, in, in, in America, the, the, those are frowned upon because of the of the lawsuits in the, in the 50s and stuff. But um, sure. the comics code. Yeah. Exactly. But it feels so varied and there's always more more comics out there. And it's it's almost like a new a, a different language for me. Kind of still be learning just how these comics go together and how they tell their stories and how they relate to each other. Mm. You know, it's 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 mm. it's really neat and it's um something I'm really fascinated by. I think that's excellent. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I don't really know what to say after all that. That was really well thought out. <laughs> I'm feeling outclassed. <laughs> oh no! Can oh no, I wait, wait. Ask a oh, I, 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 oh, I just want to say one thing. Um, of the library of death comics, I really want to call out the Ghost Town story, which, despite being um, a very Twilight Zoney, had that Mike Dory art of those zombie cowboys with their eyes in their skulls, and that was real <laughs> scary. And I thought that was a real solid piece of work in there, um, just from these side things. But I want to call it Mike Dory because he's one of my faves. Excellent. Sorry. No, no, no worries. Hey, I, I wanted to ask, um, Conrad, the, the yeah. um, you know, for a very short run, Scream has its place in the hearts of a, a generation of UK comic fans. Maybe yeah. not a large number, but, you know, a significant number. Do you think the reputation's justified from what you've seen? It is very good. I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. And I do think, you know, I was really looking at, uh, at a Max, especially because I know he's sort of the big remembered character from this mm. one. And he got I the do- t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah, he's the, he's on the T-shirt. He's the one that you know. I mean, the uh, they're they're making those Scream and Misty collections now, and the covers Max and Misty. You know, so yeah. I think he's sort of the Judge Dread of um <laughs> of Scream or whatever. Well, he does sit in judgment. Yes. Mm. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Listen, I know what I'm talking about, but. Uh... <laughs> I do think a lot of these stories are well are are very well done, and I mean, of course, they are because they're by these same artists or same writers that are doing 2018 right now. These guys that are really great at writing this British anthology comic style. Mm. You know, they're, mm. they're they're masters of the form at the height of their powers. You know, 1984. That's like the heart of the golden age of of 2000 AD, for instance, mm. where a lot of these same writers and artists are doing the best work of their careers. So. I think them going in a, in a in a different direction, and especially in an underserved market. If I could get corporate for a second of these um, <laughs> of these horror comics, which is I think again because of the controversy, isn't a, a genre that gets a lot of love. I could definitely see how these things would 
impact people who read it as children for years to come. Mm. You know, I remember those two books that I mentioned at the start of this, uh, A Dark, Dark Room and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. These are books that I haven't held in my hand in 35 years, in a very long time. But I still remember stories from them. I still remember images from them and stuff. And I think that these kinds of, of formative things can really uh, stick with us for a long time, I think. I remember um, a similar thing Eamon had Professor Julia Round on, who does a lot of work on British girls' comics and, mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and horror in there. And she talked about reading a, a horror comic when she was a girl and it really sticking with her for her whole life as well. And I think that's what's cool about these scary stories, I think, is that sometimes... They endure, yeah. Yeah, something that, that scares you can sort of lock itself in your brain for the rest of your life almost. And so <laughs> it only makes sense to me that as the purveyor of those stories the, for a bunch of kids at the time, that screams then sort of stuck around in the consciousness. I know I've I've had people ask me, like... Are you guys going to talk about Scream or cover that when we were sort of getting to that era in uh, in in 2000 AD? Because it is something that they that folks think is very iconic and and wish was talked about more. You know, it's really fun, and I think it's it, it's it's definitely worth being remembered. I think I think all all these stories are for the most part. I've 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 yet to really read a comic where I feel like we should just toss this on the dustbin. But again, I haven't really read a, an extensive amount of the same World War II stories over and over mm. again either. So I'm definitely yeah. could be corrected on that point, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much for your take. I'm glad we got there. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I've, I've enjoyed this show and it's always, always a pleasure to come on and talk to fellow prog sloggers or, or equivalent <laughs> eagle leaguers or whatever about um their progress through these stories awesome scream stalkers yeah okay <laughs> fair enough so you said you'd stop by for a bite to eat conrad can we offer you anything yeah well i mean maybe it depends i guess depends on what on how you taste ah!